Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about the human brain, meritocracy, inequality, dementia, and human rights. It is given to few people to define the age in which they live. But arguably, the eminent Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor did that in 2007 when he published his book, A Secular Age. The book was widely read, discussed, imitated and critiqued. Since its publication, the number of books that have included the phrase in a secular age in their title has been legion. A number of the book's phrases social imaginaries, imminent frame, the buffered self, exclusive humanism, have passed into wider discourse. We, at least in the West, clearly live during a period in which large numbers of people pay little regard to religious belief and practice. But secularism is a tricky word. Its origins are complex, its meanings are debatable, and its implications are hotly contested. So it's with particular pleasure that I can talk with Charles Taylor and ask the question that begins his book, what does it mean to say we live in a secular age? Charles, welcome to Reading Our Times. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) There are lots of ways of defining and understanding the secular, but I fear that if we begin with definitions, we'll spend our whole time with definitions So I want to start in a slightly different way and hope that the different definitions and dimensions of the secular will emerge along the way and to structure our discussion around, as it were, the past, the present and the future of the secular. So my opening question is, how did the idea of the secular emerge in the West? Well, the idea of the secular emerged because since about the end of the 18th century, Many people have begun to believe that religion is something that belongs to the past, it's not true, uh, it has no future, so gradually it will disappear. So the idea of the disappearance of religion, small minorities, first of all, but then more and more and more people. And then it got, got to the point where even a lot of people who have very strong faith felt, yeah, this is really terrible, people are leaving the churches, so maybe those guys are right. Now, my basic intuition was that that got the issue wrong because I just don't see religion disappearing. I mean, different kinds of faith are always going to be there. So what you should look for maybe is a mutation in how faith expresses itself. And that's what I tried to describe. So the really big message of the book is don't think that there's something called religion, which has lived the same way throughout all history, but has happened to be declining think there are issues of faith and they're lived differently at different times. And if you look in the past, Roman Empire and the Middle Ages, already we see tremendous differences. Try to understand what the key is to grasping religious life today. So that's what I tried my hand at doing. And I think the achievement of the book at least was to change the way people thought about this. 
One of the historic ways people have thought about the emergence of the secular is, as you call it, a subtraction narrative, almost a kind of a dance of the seven veils in which (laughs) we gradually throw off the kind of extraneous and unnecessary religious garments that we've been wearing throughout our history. And on the contrary, you argue that, if anything, it's been more like an addition narrative, that the secular self was quite an achievement. Talk us through that. Yeah, the reality that it's talking about, namely being a human subject, changes with it. That's the really important philosophical thesis behind this, that we're self-interpreting animals. We have a certain understanding of ourselves, and that changes who we are. So very different, for instance, is the understanding of what a human being is, anchored in a cosmos of magic and order and so on. And the understanding the human being has of himself or herself in our present age, for instance. So we aren't dealing with the same subject, the same kind of person who had this additional fact of believing in gods and he sort of threw it off and then went on the same way. We're dealing with a very different kind of being with a very different understanding of their situation. And of course, what comes out of this is that What you have in the modern contemporary age, and this for me defines the secular, is an immense number of people who are searching or looking for some meaning in life and very often looking for it in some sense of something bigger, something larger, something beyond our existence. Your book begins in 1500, approximately. It's surveying last 500 years. And one of the key implications of that is that many of these changes get underway with the Reformation. To some extent, the development of the secular is parasitic on theological debates and ideas that develop in the 16th century. Which are the most important? How does Protestantism, or how does the Reformation, get this whole thing going? Yeah, I prefer to say Reformations, because something exists on the Catholic side of the same kind. And what you have in these reformations is a strong distancing from the elements that we call magic. So there is that that very strong rejection of a world of spirits that we can live in. And secondly, another very important element in all the reformations is the attempt to get some kind of control over ourselves, some kind of disciplined control over ourselves. If you look at the Renaissance, there are all these, I mean, including on the Catholic side, things like the Jesuits, people who develop spiritual exercises to get a kind of self-control. And this, of course, produces a civilization in which the actual degree of control that human beings have over their fate grows. I mean, when you think of, this is an appropriate moment to use this example, when you think of plagues, you see, up until the beginning of the 18th century, I guess, people suffered plagues, terrible. I mean, we, we just have to hope that God will stop punishing us and so on. And then you get the idea of social organization for quarantine. It's exactly what we're all doing now, right? Social organization for quarantine. Nobody's allowed to leave the city. We clamp them down and the plague doesn't spread. We get the beginnings of this can-do attitude, which defines us today. It's the Anthropocene, the growth of what people call the Anthropocene, right? We can control the whole thing. Unfortunately, we don't. But this is another way of understanding what you are in the universe, what a human being is. And so it goes along with, for a lot of people, it goes along with uh, abandoning faith. And there was this simplistic Mm. idea which read all that, those massive changes in what it is to be a human being, 
put them in the background. Thought we were always like that. I mean, we always would have controlled the world if somebody had handed us the technology. It's exactly what we wanted to do. And these are totally fanciful ideas of, of human history. So you see this remarkable and unprecedented emergence of what you call in the book this disciplinary self, this yeah. buffered self, this human agency. This is a side question, really, but is this a uniquely European or Western phenomenon? But Do you it, see it anywhere yeah. else in global civilizations? Uh, not exactly in that form. And the thing is, it spreads very rapidly. You see, the one thing that societies do is they imitate successful rivals. And of course, here, what this yielded for Europeans was tremendous military success, right? Both in the famous military disciplines that arose in the 17th century and made, you know, you could fire cannons more more rapidly than uh, other societies, and also in the actual military technology, guns, better muskets, and so on. So other societies have got to imitate that if they're going to resist this. And of course, you get into the peripheries of Europe, you get Russia coming on board because the Tsars get tired of being defeated by little Sweden. I mean, what's going on here? This shouldn't be happening. So you get a series of similar developments of technology and and mechanisms of control, but always with a different kind of background of understanding of what's going on. That's what makes it so interesting to see the different modernities in Japan, in China, in India, and so on, different from the Western one. So this form of secular modernity almost becomes a self-perpetuating success, doesn't yeah. it? It enables itself to spread rapidly across the world, as you say. Yeah. It is worth remarking, though, that... This isn't necessarily a linear, let alone a planned historical evolution. One of the points that you bring out very clearly in your book is that there's a, a slowly developing, what you come to call a nova effect, whereby it's not a linear progression of one sense of self or one sense of modernity to another, but a spreading, almost a, a broadening of different kinds of modernities. Yeah. Yes, and when you get the situation in which this impulse that a lot of human beings have to find some deeper meaning in life, including going beyond the human, it has to find different roots. And you get this world of seekers. What I used the word Nova Effect for was the fact that the directions of search just multiply in a way that has no precedent in the past. Right? So you get people, and you get all kinds of religions and quasi-religions and maybe non-religions, different kinds of meditation that may have no faith background at all, and then different conceptions of faith, attempts to mix, let's say, Buddhism and Christianity and so on. You get, and that, that's what I want to call that, the explosion of these different possibilities. So if you look back a couple of centuries to an average European country, there is an established church, Catholic or Protestant, and there are maybe minorities that are not belong to that, and they're having some negotiation of how much freedom they can get. Their religious life is entirely, as it were, fulfilled or carried out within these large confessions. And against that, you have this immense realm of searchers, and that's a completely different way in which faith is lived out. The Romantic movement is seminally important in this, isn't it? Because yeah. this is a moment in our history in which we reach for ideas of the transcendent through art 
or nature or our sense of the sublime. And it's not as if that hadn't happened beforehand. But as I understand it, we reach for that transcendent exclusively through art or music or nature without necessarily doing so alongside any theological doctrine. Yeah. I mean, there's a very interesting thing that happens in relation to pre-19th century ideas of uh, moral order in the universe and in relation to the theological understandings of different understandings of Christian faith. You get a sense of distance from them. They're no longer easily available. People may still believe in them, but it's something they realize is a kind of leap of faith. And what they can get to is some kind of sense of cosmic connection through art, through poetry, through music. And then sometimes these can, in the way they lived and thought, these can hook up to a transcendent religious belief, but sometimes not. One of my favorite examples is uh, Wordsworth with his sense of a, you know, a force running through all things. What's interesting about that is that he immensely inspired a whole lot of people in the 19th century, all the way from George Eliot, who's an atheist, <laughs> and his later self was a you know, sort of orthodox and rather maybe conservative Anglican, right? So the sense of cosmic connection somehow rings bells with very different people. But the sort of underlying metaphysic and so on can be very, very different. So what becomes important, what becomes something that everybody can connect to is the, through this art, through these wonderful poetry of Wordsworth, through Keats, through Hrodin and also in Germany, you get this sense of something very powerful. So that tends to suggest that some kind of sensitivity to the transcendent is almost embedded within the human. It may come out in lots of very different ways, often incommensurable ways, but nonetheless, it's almost as if we are naturally tuned in to some kind of transcendent dimension to life. Yes. I mean, transcendent is a very slippery word, as I've been told, and some people yes. say, and I, I didn't know what other word to use, but it's right. So one mode of transcendence shared by lots and lots of people is I have a sense that I could be a much better human being than I am, right? More loving, more more open, more, you know, more calm, more, a whole lot of more, more, more. A sense that there's some evolution I should go through. And very often this takes the form of a faith, but it can take other forms. And that's what I think is the main thing that impels what I call seekers in today's world, right? And that seems to be something absolutely ineradicable from the human soul. I mean, people often said, mm. you know, humans are homo religiosus, religious, but what they clearly are, are homo querans, beings that search in this way because they see some sense of transformation, some higher and better mode of being, and they're looking mm. for a way of pursuing this. And before we get to today and the supernova effects and this kind of expressive individualism and personalised search for the authentic and the transcendent, we pass through a period in which that desire for transcendence, recognising it's a slippery word, is perverted in certain ways. Lots of people have often recognised that if you suppress religion and religious urges they don't go away they come out in mutated and grotesque forms and in the later 19th and into the 20th century nationalism and ethnocentrism and, and political ideologies seize on that and become almost transcendent entities yeah. themselves 
that fits into your story as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, take something like, you know, Marxism, as it turned out in Marxist-Leninism, which produced absolutely terrible results, but you can see that what they're promising is precisely such a transformation of the human. Only they think they can get it by abolishing totally all religion and <laughs> wiping out large numbers of the previous ruling class and so on. And somehow, human beings will be transformed so that they don't need discipline anymore in order to operate together smoothly, be immensely expressive, and so on and so on. And of course, many of these were terrible illusions, you know, and they produced tremendous reactions, some of them very terrible. And the history of the 20th century then moves emphatically away from these large-scale state-sponsored attempts to transform the human to where we are today, which is a much more individualised, liberalised, personalised desire to achieve authenticity or personal transcendence. This is the supernova effect, isn't it? Well, there's a complex relation between authenticity and this kind of search, because this kind of search for self, for my own way of being, can be carried out without any sense of moving to the transcendent in, a, you know, in the inevitable sense of, I want to be a, a better human being. It can just be, I have, I want to do this, I want to do that, this is me, and so on. It can be something very, very trivial in the end. But there is a connection, there's a connection because both of these are a form in which you fall back on the individual, on the individual's search, right? And what I think the big uh, dynamic in our present-day society, one of the things that's making it go so terribly wrong in our democracies, is that without a sense of solidarity, without a sense of how we belong to each other, this produces absolutely appalling consequences, of which the present-day, what people call populism, is is an example. We've had a a class of managers, experts, very clever people, best and brightest who made their way up through Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, whatever, and think that they did it all themselves and that they don't owe anything to anyone else. And the people who leave home and make it in London or New York, as against the people they left behind in the village, there is this great gap and a great sense of resentment on the part of the people left behind, which has produced a lot of the votes for Trump in the United States, and I think also for Brexit (laughs) uh, in the UK. So it's really had devastating consequences for us. And in that way, authenticity can lead you off into a very encapsulated universe of self, you know, self-satisfaction. It is very striking to hear you say that because earlier in the series we were talking to Michael Sandel about the tyranny of meritocracy and precisely that and then also Thomas Piketty and about the lack of solidarity. These are themes, not surprisingly, if we're talking about reading our times, these are the themes that keep on coming back. Yeah. I want to just take a slight sidestep here because Hmm. we're talking about the secular and to many, many people, the popular association of the secular and secularism is in some way anti-religious or at least non-religious. Secular societies were set up in opposition to religious voices in society and many religious people see the secular as somehow the enemy. Can you explain to us how that concept of secular as explicitly antagonistic towards religious belief and practice fits in with the story you're telling? 
Yeah, well, it's the first word denomination of what people thought of as secular before the contemporary 20th century world, where it was defined as the decline of religion. Now, you can believe in the decline of religion without being hostile, but it's a very good basis on which to become hostile. <laughs> if you find religious people are resisting certain changes that you think are necessary, you become automatically anti-religious. So if you look at it with my lens, right, where the religious is not one kind of thing in history, but takes different forms. And the form it's taking now is this seeking. Okay? You have something quite different, which is not threatening, which is on the contrary, a, as it were, a zone in which uh, faith can flourish. But there's a very important uh, if or a but or <laughs> problem with this, which is that a lot of people that are still very strongly, very strong faith, still want to have the kind of faith which you live entirely through an authoritative teaching by an authoritative church. And the, one of the big struggles going on in today's society in the West is between, if you like, seekers and people who, on the contrary, are afraid of seekers. They're, these people are always introducing various kinds of heresy, various kinds, they're breaking the rules, and, so on. and they're talking about homosexuality. I mean, what's going on here? And I think one of the big uh, phenomena of the 21st century is going to be the tremendous struggle for the soul of different faiths between these different kinds of understanding. Is it going to be a Christianity of seekers or a Christianity of authority and order? Is it going to be Islam of Sufi, you know, Sufi, the absolute paradigm case of seekers going way back into the into the tradition, or is it going to be Saudi, Wahhabi, supposed application of Sharia as exactly as it was in 630? <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. these are the, the, the biggest struggles of today are within the faith communities. My overriding sense is it's almost invariably going to be both. I mean, if yeah, you think yeah. about the fact that, say, Christian fundamentalism yeah. was uh, a direct response to modernity and theological liberalism, and the way that we see a supernova effect across society is liable to be replicated within religions, that the tendency is for things to fall apart, isn't it, as Yeats yeah. famously said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, those who believe in the returning to the absolute beginning of fundamentalist, the Salafists in Islam, also don't agree with each other. So what you have is a, a fracturing there. So that kind of fracturing goes on. But in a certain sense, the issue is what kind of religion is going to be dominant in the respective civilization. In other words, look at it from the Islamic point of view. In Islamic societies, what kind of Islam is going to be dominant. And if it's the kind that you have in Saudi Arabia, for instance, then you know, watch out for the world. Or and the same thing can be said yeah. about, about Christendom, if you like. Yeah. Well, that leads us to, as it were, the second part of the opening sentence of your book, because the book opens by asking the question, what does it mean to say we live in a secular age? And we've been talking about what a secular age is and how it develops. But the question about how we live in it is equally important, arguably more important. Mm -hmm. And it points towards these questions of what kind of polity we should live within. What does a secular political system look like? Rowan Williams has pulled apart different ideas of the secularism, programmatic secularism and procedural secularism, the former being quite authoritarian, the latter just articulating the processes and structures by which we live, but not imposing any 
secular in the sense of non-religious mm. yeah. regime. Do you have a sense of which direction we're heading in now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, this is a fight I'm tremendously engaged in day by day because in France, you have the domination at the moment of the bad kind of secularism where you want to ban certain kinds of, in this case, non-Catholic religions. I mean, it's kind of catholicité is what we call it uh, in a mocking tone. And to some extent, some people in Quebec have taken that up and they want to ban the wearing of the hijab in certain jobs and so on. As against that, people on my side, if you like, of the political divide, we've invented a concept of laicite ouverte, open secularism, which is precisely what you're talking about. The state is not doesn't belong to anybody, not not to any religion, not to any anti-religion, and it's there to facilitate, you know, the living out of freedom of conscience by whoever, whosever conscience it is. Right? We're still fighting that battle between people who mm. want to use secularism as a kind of bludgeon to get rid of religious forms they don't like, and sometimes they're very selective here, <laughs> and people who see it in a completely different light as a way of living together. But I think you have to add something to that. I mean, it's one thing is what the law is. Another thing is what kinds of relations between people can make that kind of law live and thrive. And I think that what we maximally need is exchange between people of very different faiths, people who are seeking. And this is another remarkable thing about today's age, which I'm very encouraged by. There is not only a kind of ecumenicism of well, let's stop fighting and let's stop bad-mouthing each other. There's an ecumenicism now of real wondering, real curiosity, real interest in what the faith of the other is. And remarkably, very strong friendships grow up with a sense of kind of common, common situation between people, Catholics, Buddhists, atheists of various kinds, on the basis of this kind of exchange. So the more you can have this kind of actual behavior by people, the more a legal structure in which it's, it's open secularism, if you like, can thrive. And the more you mm. lose that and you have these kind of powerful battles between the ultra-Orthodox on both sides, the more you mm. move towards a secularism that is punitive, angry, suspicious. No. The danger is that the punitive angry, suspicious secularism feeds off the more muscular authoritarian religiosity, which then feeds off the secularism and you get yeah, a very negative yeah, exactly. supernova effect yeah, effectively. Yeah, yeah, it it right. really is striking, isn't it? How I mean, you mentioned France, but secularism is in severe retreat in Turkey yeah. and in India as well, where yeah. you see this pattern of religious nationalism. Yeah. Treat secular, treat state secularism as the enemy. Yeah. And I mean, what's even stranger and more bizarre and more, to me, disturbing is a lot of these supposedly religious nationalists and so on don't really believe in anything. You know, the background of the BJP, someone like Savarkar, who's the great intellectual who launched Hindu Mahasabha, who became the BJP, he was an atheist. What he believed in was Hindutva. Hindutva is a cultural notion. Right? You don't have to be worshiping Krishna or, no, on the contrary, you want to really get rid of some, you use them instrumentally and raise mobs to tear down the, the faith life of Modi. I hate to even imagine what it's like. <laughs> so, so this is a real a tremendous uh, paradox that the people who are 
most leading what looked like religious nationalist movements are very often people who have a, to quote Nietzsche, a great will to power, <laughs> which is what they're really, really worshipping. It's telling, isn't it? I mean, you might make the same example for Erdogan in Turkey about yeah. y- using Islam cynically, and dare I say it, Donald Trump as well, who oh, oh, garnered totally. something yeah. like 80% of white evangelical support, and yet is not known for being a, a passionate evangelical himself. <laughs> no, <I> mean, <laughs> exactly. This is one of the tremendous paradoxes. And I guess it goes back to one of your original points about how religion is, or religious sensitivity, if you like, or religious identity is somehow deeply rooted in human psyche and immensely powerful. And it is very easily, therefore, hijacked by people who may not have a religious bone in their body, but boy, can they see the political use of it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. They see the hunger in others and they're going to be ready to fill it, (laughs) provided you put me in power, I'll do anything you want. (laughs) So let, let's try and end on a, on a hopeful note because it would be easy. <laughs> it would be easy to to be unduly negative. What signs do you see that a more positive, religiously sensitive form of secularism is emerging and even winning the day? Well, we'll see what happens on November the third. But I have a feeling, I have a hope that uh, the Trump will be up, upset and thrown out. And when he's thrown, if he is thrown out, it'll be because of a, I hope, more than temporary alliance between people of very, very different backgrounds and ideas, even different senses of what the most important campaign is. It'll be maybe Black Lives Matter here, and then elsewhere it'll be let's have a proper health care system, and so on. And you get these movements of people to recover what they see as the best way of being that is fits with what the society believes in. In the American case, you know, the founders and so on. And, and uh, these movements of renewal can be really, they're never going to be total and definitive. We're always going to have these challenges, but they can put us back on the right track. I think it would have a great effect, not just on the United States, but I think on the whole Western world, if Trump were resoundingly thrown out by this kind of very broad movement. Mm. And with regards to the self, because we began our conversation about how the secular age is inaugurated by different understandings of ourselves. In the 21st century, there is no one single pattern there. But nonetheless, there is this profound persistent search for meaning and purpose and transcendence. Where do you see that positively leading us? Well, I think it can lead us to a civilization that is really admirable to live in if we have the sense of what real transformation, real ethical transformation is that has an important place for this kind of open exchange, even friendship, across these differences. I mean, there's a very interesting thing which has happened in human history, if you go right back to the famous axial changes, right, in which these ideas of universality and were born, is that there's been a steady growth in public acceptance of a more and more exigent public ethic. So that we get in our age, in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, subscribed to by almost everyone. It's a remarkable right to 
because it's only, it's only a century and a half, and they were still slaves in our civilization, and we have this huge leap forward. However, what's clear is that there's a massive gap between these aspirations and what actually takes place, right? Can we lessen the gap between our officially proclaimed, and all, even in cases like China, you know, they officially proclaim this, this ethic, right, as they are forcing the Uyghurs to abandon Islam. And so so uh, there's this disconnect. Is it possible to conceive of a civilization or some parts of the civilization which can develop a culture which will bring us a little bit less <laughs> distant from this strongly proclaimed official ethic, which nobody wants to... Well, very few people actually want to abandon, right? They are all pretending, oh, we're living up to Erdogan and all these guys, right? So that's a, that is a big, if you like, political, cultural issue for us, which covers the kind of faith life we have, as well as the kind of relations we have, as well as the kind of solidarity we have or don't have, and, and, and so on. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation and great to talk with you. The book is called, of course, A Secular Age. Charles Taylor, thank you very much for talking to Reading Our Times. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Next week, I'll be speaking to Nikki Gerard about her book, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. Love, over and over again, goes to the heart of what I'm saying. Not love in a kind of saccharine, easy way. Love is very hard. Proper, enduring love is the most difficult thing that we do. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team also includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. Podcast.